we have been in this a couple weeks now, the end times, the second coming of Jesus, and I, I challenged you at the very beginning of this, saying that there are a number of wrong approaches when it comes to uh, eschatology, which is essentially the study of the end, and, and there's been a number of people that have gone before us and, and looked at this, and, and a lot of scholars and smart people have tried to answer a lot of the questions that, that, are, that come around eschatology, and, and I think a lot of them have, have dove for an answer to clearly understand what Jesus was saying in these two chapters of Matthew. This is where a lot of the, the different views have come from. This is where a lot of the people vary into what their ism or their ist belief is. And as I promised, I said, we're not going to really dive into specifically each of those beliefs, but we will talk a little bit about them and see if there's something else in this or in this the way that Jesus is trying to communicate to us through this text. I challenged you a couple weeks ago that there are, it's really easy for us to approach the second coming of Jesus three wrong ways. Out, out of fear, we're, we're afraid of, of what it may mean, and so we just run from it, or we, we, we're overwhelmed by it, and it causes us to make poor decisions, and that's not necessarily it, or a kind of fixation where we're fixated on it. We want to know every single answer about it, and it's one thing to want to know about God, but it, it's another to be fixated on a certain um, theology or a certain study of his word that can get you in a lot of trouble. And then the third one, which I, I felt like a lot of us camp in, is, is, is that it's false, that Jesus isn't really coming back and that we live our life as if the only thing that matters is what we do here. And our furthest we look out is maybe our retirement or what we'll do when the kids are gone and ultimately like not living at the fact that Jesus is coming back. And no matter where the beliefs go, the end time beliefs go, no matter where they, they land up, they all agree on one thing and one thing that we promised that we would just stay in is that Jesus is coming back. That Jesus is going to come back to finish what he's already begun and that that is going to happen. And as we dive into this, I challenge you that this, this study shouldn't bring about fear or fixation or falseness. It should bring about a spiritual readiness. A readiness of saying that, like, I want to see where my life is right now and how it plays out for God's will and God's purposes in light of Jesus coming back. It, 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 it instills in us a, a mission urgency, an urgency to, to see our loved ones and our friends and our families come to know the hope and peace of Jesus Christ because he is coming back. It also gives us the power to forgive because we know that ultimately God will have his, um, all justice happen when Jesus comes back. Everything will be taken care of. And so for us to carry around that bitterness does us no good, only harms us. And the last thing that it, that, it, that it does, us recognizing that Jesus is coming, one of the, the biggest things that we can weave through this is it brings about hope in a very, very dark and much-needed world. And so when we look at the end times, we can understand the second coming of Jesus. We can fix our eyes, as, as the author of Hebrews says, on the author and perfecter of our faith, Jesus Christ. He's the prize. He's the, he's the one that we desire to see, and this is what we focus on. And so as we dig in today, I do I, I want to warn you a little bit. It's a little bit... Um, kind of scholastic in, in essence, but bear with me. There's some things we need to define, and then hopefully we'll get into this a little bit more where I feel like kind of land on it. And verse 15 is where we're going to pick up in chapter 24. So remember, Jesus had just come out of saying this. This is all Jesus speaking. He had just finished with, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. And when I had said that last week, we talked about, well, okay, was well, the gospel being to what nations? And now depending upon your theology and where you land on this, the nations could literally be the different tribes of Israel that were present, and that's where the gospel needs to go, or the nations could literally be what we say today, all the nations in the world. And depending upon your belief, that's where you land, and that's, that's what you say, it's one or the other. But all of these answers, everything that Jesus is saying is, is because of two questions that were asked to him by his disciples. And remember, this isn't, this isn't the crowd. 
He's, he's left the crowd. He's, 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 he's made his way across the Kidron Valley. He's on the, he's on the Mount of Olives, and he's over in this spot where he's just with his, his, his disciples. The Eleven are there. And they ask him this question because he had talked about when they were highlighting the temple, like, look how beautiful it is. Jesus tells them, I tell you, <laughs> there will be a day when not a single stone will be left on top of the other, which was an astronomical belief. We talked about that last week. And I promise you that this week we, we kind of hone in on the temple. Before we do that, I feel like it's very, we need, to, we need to understand something about Scripture. It is infallible. God has inspired people to write these words, and these are the words, this is truth. This is what we, we live our lives on. If you, you bear the name of Christ, you bear that this is truth. This is what we, we follow. This is what we focus. In the Scriptures, that being said, in the Scriptures, we have to understand that sometimes, and this is where people get in trouble with all kinds of theology, so I don't want to go there. Just stay away from those landmines if you can and help me weave a very narrow, narrow road here. Sometimes things are literal. We are to take what is said in that setting very literal, and that is exactly what we have to take. Other times, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a metaphor. It's a picture of something that's coming. And for most of us, if I just say the parables, the parables weren't not something that happened. They were a picture of bringing about truth. And so we, oh, okay, that makes sense. But anytime I say, well, in Scripture, sometimes some things that we can read that may be metaphorical or figurative and, and some are literal, we get kind of a little nervous. So just bear with me. This is God's Word. It's true. It's, it's there. It's, it's beautiful. It's awesome. We live by it. We are surrendered to it. If I'm ever not preaching out of it, fire me, okay? Get rid of me. That's not what we're supposed to be doing is we are supposed to stay in this. But that being said, there are things, and this is important because a couple prophecies, there's, there's numbers of them, but two prophecies in Isaiah 34 and Isaiah 13, Two prophecies that we know have come true, but there were vivid imagery in which that we didn't actually see. And so a lot of times when we look at some imagery that's, that's defined, the imagery could be a literal in, in the text today, a literal the sun goes away, or it could, it could be a metaphor, a, a way of speaking in their context to relate to a kingdom of people, a power in place. And so we have to understand that some of that is at play here as well. And so again... Just know that as we dig in, some of that's at play. So we're going we're gonna to look at this. Again, Jesus is asked these two questions. When's the temple going to happen? And when are you coming back? Is essentially the signs of the age. What are the signs of you coming back? And when are you coming back? That was one question. We talked about that last week. Okay, so in this, in this, in verse 15 is where we pick up. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetops not go down to take what is in his house. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath. And so he's, he goes into this section where it'd be really easy for us to go, okay, what, how can we apply this in light of history? First, I, I want to talk about it this way. Uh, it seems like, and most scholars agree, that the abomination of desolation, there have been uh, versions of that throughout the times of history and Jewish, and Jewish culture. The abomination of desolation is, is the idea of bringing something that is not of God into God's holy place and desecrating it. Okay, and most scholars in this today, most scholars believe that this actually happened and was fulfilled in, in 168 B.C., the, where Daniel's talking about it. This prophecy is in Daniel 8, 11, 12, and 13. You can read the book of Daniel. I encourage you. It talks all about this. And most scholars believe that at about 168 B.C. is when this happened, what, what, the, what prophet Daniel spoke of. Now, the reason why is, is, is that in 168 B.C., a Greek 
king named Antiochus Epiphanes was in charge and, and came into Jerusalem, and he overtook a number of different areas, but he overtook all sorts of people, came to Judea, and decided to take the temple. And in that, what he did is he placed a golden statue of Zeus on the temple mount in the holy place. And so on the temple mount, here's the Zeus. So that's a, an abomination to the Jewish people. It's, it's destroying the most holy place. Now, to the Jews, you've got to understand, holy place is temple mount. It's where the most holy of holies is. Some scholars believe that holy place is the city of Jerusalem. Again, that depends on where you view. Please stay with me. I promise this is going to go somewhere. But ultimately, most people believe that that's what Daniel was talking about. That came true in 168 B.C. Now, what you and I have further on in history is we have more historical evidence and more historical events that have come. And so what it seems like when Jesus is speaking here, it seems like right here he's answering the disciples' question about the temple. And now remember, the disciples in their day and the Jews in Jesus' day, the temple, the signs of the coming, and the coming all were one fluid event, like exactly there. It was all one conversation. So for us today, we have to say, okay, well, what does this really mean? Well, about A.D. 70, we have uh, Josephus, who was a, a Jewish scholar that ended up being liked by the Romans and became a Roman citizen as well. But we have all kinds of amazing writings of him in this time where he's telling us stories and, and information or telling, talking about history about other events. And he, in writing, very, very clearly and to find details, explained A.D. 70 to us. Now, A.D. 70 was the War of the Jews. And this was a horrible horrible time, okay? When Antiochus was there, it was almost, it was actually probably worse even, but this was a really bad time too. And what happened is, so this is some 40 years after Jesus says these words, all of a sudden, Rome starts working their way into Jerusalem and surrounding it and starts pressing into Jerusalem and starts just trying to destroy it and take over. In the middle of that, that siege as Rome is coming in, Titus, the guy that was running the siege, is called away by Caesar for something that, he, that Caesar felt like they were, they were weakened in a specific area so that he got called away. Well, there's other writings that talk about how every single Christian Jew in this time, during that little escape there, fled the city. They, they fled the city. And so it's by Josephus and uh, a number of other, um, Eusebius and a number of other scholars say that there wasn't a single Christian that was take, their life was taken in AD 70. So it seems as though that, this prophecy that Jesus is speaking about is in regards to AD 70. What makes it really confusing is the whole let the reader understand statement in verse 25 there. He says, he says let, or right at the beginning, sorry, verse 15. Let the reader understand. It's in parentheses. And in the earliest manuscripts, we don't know if this is speaking specifically to let the reader understand what Daniel's talking about or let the reader understand about how this applies to what we're talking about. So this is where all these views kind of start waffling and moving away and going in different directions. And everyone's like, well, this is, maybe it means this, and, and maybe it means this. And I'm, I'm telling you guys this not to confuse the snot at you. I'm, I'm telling you this because we're, we're going to go somewhere. But ultimately, where you land on the temple, you can see about your, your ism and your belief in this. So is this temple um, destruction that happened in AD 70, is this what Jesus is answering right here? Because that was one of the questions of the disciples. It would seem like it could be. And if, it, if, it, if this temple is what he's talking about, he's not talking about 168 B.C., he's talking about A.D. 70 where Josephus has the writings. If this is what he's talking about, well, then this took place. 
And the reason why is it seems, it seems to make sense that he's talking about this. And, and stay with me for a second. It seems to make sense because he gets super clear in his details. If you're on the rooftops, don't go down and leave. If you're in the, if you're in the, the fields, just don't get your cloak and go. Those are all details to us. Like, that kind of seems weird. Well, in, in first century Jews in, in Jerusalem, they would, they would hang out on rooftops. Rooftops were the, the cooler spot in the hot days where they get a breeze and stuff. And so there was living quarters on top of, of roofs. Well, you could literally run from roof to roof to roof to roof. And so that's what he's saying. He's saying, don't even go in the house if this comes. Get up and bail. When you're working in the field, you would remove your outer cloak because it was hot and it would get dirty. And so you'd remove your outer cloak to continue to work. And he's saying, don't even, don't even go back for your cloak. Just, just hightail it out. And then he, he talks about pregnant um, women or women that are nursing and saying, this is going to be extremely difficult for you. And then he uses this, this term, if it, pray that it's not, we pray that it's not on a Sabbath or in a winter. And a lot of scholars want to say, well, see, this is where the Christians should hold to all commandments of the Mosaic law because of the whole Sabbath. I think that Jesus is literally saying that because he knows that if it were a Sabbath, that there are, there are very strict Jews that would make it harder for other people to do what they needed to do in fleeing on a Sabbath. The gates would be closed. Everything's kind of shut in. You couldn't get any supplies. So they, this is literally a difficulty of running. So if it happens in that or in winter, it's going to be harder. And so we know from history that a, a number of Christians fleed, followers of Jesus fleed Jerusalem right prior, I mean prior to, to Titus taking over and, and destroying. And actually Titus wanted to keep the, the temple intact in because it was a beautiful thing, but a few of his, his army men sent some, some flaming arrows over the wall, and, and what ended up happening is thousands and thousands of Jewish children, women, and men locked themselves in the temple to try and hold themselves there while they burned. So it was this horrible, horrible thing. Well, what happens when it burned, it got so hot that the gold that, that was on this would start melting down in the rocks. Well, Titus then said, well, we don't want to lose this gold. There's a lot of gold, so it's turn every stone, find the gold. And so that's where every stone got turned over to, 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 to grab all the gold that had fallen from the temple. And so we have this very, very true historical event that seems to make sense to what Jesus is saying right here. Now, some believe that this is a prediction of and a foreshadowing of what will come. So the destruction of the temple and the desecration that comes could be the fact that Jesus was just prior to this running people out of the temple court because they were, they were treating the temple, God's place as if it was a market, a trading place. Some believe that this is a foreshadow to what will happen for the temple in the future. And obviously we don't have the temple in place, but they look at it that way. And some believe that this is just exactly it. This took place. This is how it was. This was God's judgment on a people that had turned their back in there. And, and depending upon where you land theologically in, those, in your, your end time studies, that kind of dictates where we go from there. Okay, so moving on. And then we'll, we'll make a little bit more sense of this. Moving on in verse 20, 21. For then there will be great tribulation such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for, for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. So if they say to you, look, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. 
And so Jesus goes on, and he kind of starts speaking it in a different way. He starts talking about, okay, well, here's this, here's this, this great hard time period, and then he goes on and speaks specifically about these days being cut short. Now, it seems like, it seems like Jesus isn't speaking specifically about the temple event in this setting. It would make sense that he, would move, he had moved on a little bit. But there's a couple of other uh, words that I want to define in here, and this is important. He uses the word elect. He also says that, that none shall be saved. We read saved today as, oh, saved mean I'm a believer in Jesus. I've been saved from myself. I think this is actually a physical saving. Like none would physically live if these days were not cut short. Now the elect, this is the first time in the New Testament that the word elect comes. Now I don't, this is a whole nother belief system, but I don't know where you land on, on, on the election or God choosing us, but there's something so unique and beautiful about this term being used in this setting. And we'll get there in, in just a second. But some agree or argue that, that the elect is the people of Israel. The chosen Jews that we've, we've, we've that, that terminology has kind of made its way through the Old Testament. But others believe that this is actually those that are followers of Jesus Christ, the, the, the children of God. And there's a really, really unique, if it's the latter, there's a really unique and beautiful um, promise out of that. And we'll go there in just a second. Um, Another thing that needs to be defined, he has this, this statement at the end about these vultures hanging out. What's, what's that have to do? Jesus is literally saying, it's, it's like saying essentially um, that, that where spiritually dead people are, inevitably judgment will come. So where, where dead people are, vultures are going to show up for the meat. And he's saying where spiritually dead, dead people are, inevitably judgment will come. And so that's a, that's a, that's a promise in that. And then in verse 25, just kind of tucked in here, which is why I believe that, that the previous events talking about the temple and, and that stuff were specifically for the disciples he's talking to in that setting right there. Now, where you believe the temple lands in your, your, your end belief, I think that this, this conversation was for them. In verse 25, he says, he says very specifically, See, I have told you beforehand. That is a very common thing for a prophet to have said, Look, I'm telling you before it's actually happened. So that when it happens, you will know that I'm truly telling the truth. That, I'm, that, I, am, that I, am, I am a prophet. That's a, that's a language that a prophet would say. Obviously, Jesus was more than a prophet. But it, it, he's literally letting him know. See, I'm telling you this beforehand so that when it comes, when you see it, you can know that I'm true. And then the second part, he hits what we talked about very specifically last week. He says, and many will stand up and say and do amazing things and say that they are the Messiah. Don't be led astray. So it's like Jesus is talking about what's happening. Hey, I'm going to tell you what's going to happen with the temple, which to them was a ludicrous idea, right? That the temple would be destroyed. It seemed impossible and never would happen. And he says, but so that when you see that happen beforehand, you can trust what I'm saying. You can know that I know these things that are coming. And so he says that. Then he goes on in verse um, 28. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. 
And so we, we get this picture where it's, it's to, to us, if we, if we take this and realize, okay, this is one of the times I think the little subtitles in your book <laughs> made a good job. Like, I think this is specifically talking about when Jesus is coming back. But what he says just prior to that is, is that, that the Messiah coming is going to be as obvious as lightning in the sky. If you've ever watched a lightning storm, you're not looking at it going, I wonder if that was a bird. Maybe it was Superman. Like, you don't, like, you look at lightning, you're, it's pretty obvious. And that's what he's saying, that when, when I come, when I come, my children will know who I am. When I come, you will have no doubt that it's me. And then he comes into a little bit more imagery of what, what it looks like when he comes down. Now, this is another divide for scholars, okay? And the reason why I, re- I, I mentioned Isaiah earlier on is that Isaiah had some very cosmic things that would happen around these prophecies where the sun and the stars and all those things, and none of those things actually happened, but the prophecy happened. And so in, in their culture, sometimes the sun and the stars and all those things have nothing to do with actually the sun and the stars and have everything to do with the powers to be in the kingdoms around. So the sun can reference that. That's a very common language thing. So depending upon where you, you stand and what you believe, the sun may actually go dark, or it may not, and it just may be a verb or a metaphor using the description of, of powers falling people falling in that way. And so that's just something that we should be aware of. But in all this, we gain a little bit of insight into what I think that Jesus is actually trying to do in this section. First off is, is, the, is the, the commitment to, to request not to be led astray. But in the middle of this section, he, he weaves this idea as the elect, and he talks about days being cut short for them. Now, now what's unique about this is the tribulation period could be seven years, three and a half years, uh, uh, extended period of time. That is, again, depending upon your belief this time. But what we're confident of, what we need to camp in, and what we need to understand is, is verse 21. And I'm going to read it again to you real quickly. For then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. Now that's a unique thing to read when you know just a little bit of history. When we know just about 168 B.C. or A.D. 70, when we know about those two events, to hear that there's going to be a time that has never been as bad, it, nothing has ever been as bad as it before, and nothing will ever be as bad as it again. There is a time period coming that is so hard, so horrific, that we've never, ever experienced it. Now, if, you are, if you're not a history buff, you know just a little bit about history. Inside and outside the church, we have a lot of really ugly, really dark history. We've seen and experienced and heard horrendous things. So Jesus makes this claim saying that, no, no, what's going to happen is so different and so hard and so difficult that it's never actually been experienced by anyone on this earth and never will be experienced again. So in it, we have a promise a very unique promise, a promise that what we will experience is going to be harder than ever, but a promise that, that, that says that from then on it will never, ever happen again. And what's unique about that is that most of us, if we're honest with ourselves in here today, we've experienced hard days. You've experienced really, really, really hard times in your life. Maybe you're in the middle of a really, really hard and scary and anxious-ridden time. Maybe you're just around the corner to the next one. And you've experienced this hardship in ways that at times 
it makes you ask these questions like, why, God? How, how, can, how can this be? Why me, right? We ask these questions. Or how, I've done everything right. Why would you keep attacking me in this way? And I just want to reorient our thinking a little bit. Maybe it could be, and again, I'm not 100% certain on it, but it could be that God is preparing you for something worse. The hardship you experienced today or last week or last year or in the middle of right now or the one that you're going to experience next month is training. And why do I say it that way? Is, is Jesus says very specifically in here, he says that the days are cut short for, for the elect, for my children. So it's obviously going to be hard enough and difficult enough that even his children are going to wrestle with this. And he says, if it were possible, which tells us it's not, even the elect, even my children would be led astray. Well, if you've ever experienced, I mean, pain. I'm not just talking physical. Physical can work if you've not ever experienced emotional or sadness. If you've experienced death or hardship or lost relationships or just anxiety or immense depression. I mean, when it, when it gets hard, right, and it's pushing and the walls are kind of closing in on you, it's in that moment that we start grabbing for stuff. We start grabbing to things to try and solve it when ultimately God is the only one that will restore us and free us and heal us from whatever we're going through. That's why I say maybe the hardships you're experiencing, the depression you're wrestling, the sadness you're struggling with is, is, is not God inducing it, but it's God training you saying, look, as you experience this, when you come out, you're going to look more like my son than you did before. And it's preparation, it's training for the fact that it's coming on. In fact, the church has done a really great job over the years of telling us and making us believe that following Jesus is like fluffy bunnies and cotton candy, right? It's the easiest thing in the world, right? It's just soft and, oh, it's so sweet, right? Like, no, it's, <laughs> look, Jesus' words were, you want to follow me? Die to yourself. Now, if you've ever tried to be selfless enough to die to yourself, you know that that's not exactly easy. If you're married, you're like, amen, <laughs> so difficult. If you have kids, you're like, it's impossible, can't do it, Right? Like, you've experienced how difficult it is to be that dead to yourself. And Jesus' call to follow him is to die to yourself. That in it of itself tells us something very clear. It's a promise. It's going to be hard. It's going to be difficult. And, and a lot of us are, and this isn't an America kind of thing, we are so comfortable, dare I say cautiously comfortable, in following Jesus. There's not a lot we have to give up to follow him. In fact, we struggle to give up much of anything to follow him. While brothers and sisters across the world are going, now following Jesus is, is life or death today. And Jesus is saying, what our brothers and sisters experience across the world, as horrible as it is, people, people that are being steamrolled as they sing praises to Christ because they won't denounce him, as horrible as all that is, it gets harder it gets more difficult. And if you think about what it means to not be led astray, if you have some view of Christianity, it's only easy. Following Jesus is only easy, only easy. When you start experiencing hardship after hardship after hardship, pretty soon you're like, I don't know if I even believe in Jesus anymore. And you start running. And you start grabbing onto things, to alcohol, to girls, to relationships, to something, or maybe it's a different church, or maybe it's this, and you just start grabbing at stuff. When Jesus is going, no, 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 no. Do you remember, like, I'm the author, like the beginner, and the perfecter of your faith? Not just the, like, hey, I'm going to author this and good luck, figure it out, have fun. No, I'm going to perfect it. 
I'm going to finish it. I'm going to complete your faith. And in the end, you'll look more like me and less like you. Praise God for that. There's going to be hard times ahead. So no matter where you stand on this, whether the temple was a precursor to what's coming, the temple was, in fact, a literal translation in that, or it, it's not, there's another version of what's going to happen later on, no matter what you believe in all that, well, one thing that we can be so confident of is it's going to be hard. Following Jesus is hard. Now, there is immense joy and peace and hope in following Jesus. There are times of immense blessing. God gives you that. If you've ever experienced someone that has been through a really, really horrible thing that clung to Jesus, you've looked in on the outside and it almost doesn't make sense to you, right? You're like, that doesn't make sense. How can they be doing that well? Like, pretty soon you're like, well, meaning like, obviously they're not doing well and you try and poke them in areas. Like, they're going to figure out how to, like, really blow up in this section when ultimately they're, they're resting in Christ. Saying, yeah, death is horrible. Loss is, 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 is horrific. But, but I remember that Jesus took away death. He took away the pain. And I can, I, can, I, can, I can have hope in him despite my circumstances. One last thing I need to say. Some of you right now are thinking, oh, whew, my life is hard because I'm in training. This is great. When realistically your life is hard because you're making really poor decisions or being disobedient and sinful. I bring that up. I smile. I'm not making fun. I do the same thing. I'm like, why, God? It's like sometimes I feel like he like smacks me in the head. He's like, because you did that, Brent. It's like, oh, right. God obviously is not shameful like I am. But some of your hardships right now are because you continually disobey God and his word. You take figuratively things that he's literally telling you to do. And you minimize and you push and you shift and you, you run and you hide behind terms and statements that, that sound very Christ-like but aren't true. So some of the hardships that you and I experience are because of our own pride, our own sin, our own poor decisions and choices. And yes, God, here's, here's the best part of that, that, and I've seen it time and time again in my own poor decisions. God redeems it. He redeems it to make it something that is absolutely beautiful that I had nothing to do with. But that doesn't mean I go, well, he fixed it last time. Let's try it again. That's not, the, that's not how following Jesus works. So some of your, your struggles, some of your hardships, some of the, the trials you're in are because you continually disobey God and his word. That's not good training. That's like eating a whole cake and then going for a run, thinking that you can burn it off anyways. I know some of us, I do it sometimes. I'm not going to lie, right? That's not good training. When, when God's promises, look, look here's, here's the, the silly thing that the God kind of reminded me of this week. When I make these poor decisions and I, when I sin and I go apart from God's way in my life and I start dealing with these difficult circumstances in my life, I'm just making what he has already promised to be hard, harder. I'm just saying, well, I know it's going to be hard, Jesus, but I really want it to be hard. Why would we do that? The promise here is that, is that it is going to be hard. And what I wanted to do, is the, the band's going to come up and we're going to worship. What I wanted to do is, is I feel like a lot of times, one of the things I hear predominantly from a number of people as we, we meet and everything is, I have a hard time hearing God or feeling God or, or, or understanding what he's trying to say to me. And I think a lot of times it's, it's not that he's not speaking to you or that you're not feeling. It's that you have so much other noise in your life, you have drowned him out completely. You're listening to so many other voices, including your own, that you can't hear his voice. And so what we're going to do is, 
is because of the fact that some of you, I don't want to make light of this, some of you are experiencing immense hardship right now. Some of you have been experiencing what seems like a decade of difficulty. You're like, when is this going to end? Brother or sister, it, it may not. But God is still good. His word is still true. His promises are still here, and he is coming back. Mike, one of my friends, he's, he's older. He's more seasoned. He's been in life long. And he says the older he gets, the more he desires for Jesus to come back. And it's funny, when, when life gets really hard in my own life, I find myself longing for the same thing. And so maybe some of the hardship you're experiencing is God just reorienting your mind back on him. He's saying, no, no, fix your eyes on me. Maybe some of us, it's good right now. And we should still be fixated on him. What I want to do is I want to just give us, it's going to feel long, a little pause. I want to give us just a minute of silence. And I, I want to encourage you to just ask God to speak to you. What is he telling you in this, in this trial? What is he telling you to prepare you for the next trial? What is he telling you that, that, that you need to hear but you can't hear because you're always so busy and you always have so much stuff? Isn't it unique that God calls us to be still and know him? He doesn't say, hey, do a lot for me and know me. Hey, hey, pack yourself out so much doing all this great stuff and then hopefully you'll find out who I am. He says, no, be still and know who I am. Know that I'm God. I want to give you a chance to be still. And, and, and my encouragement, college students, because I know you're, you're getting tired and stuff, this isn't a time for now, okay? I know finals are coming. You're like, you're just, your mind's exhausted. Just, just allow God to speak to you, and then I'll pray for us, and we'll, we'll sing some worship. Sometimes the silence can be so scary. Sometimes it's, 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 it's scary to give you space to just speak to us. Maybe there's fear that we won't hear you that maybe you won't speak but over and over and over again in the scriptures you tell us to listen to your voice to incline our hearts to your voice to, to, to hear you speak and God you do speak so I don't know if you're speaking to anyone in the room right now that specifically has never heard you speak before they've, they've, they've never known that you would speak they've never surrendered their life to you God I pray that that person right now would, would press into your voice that you're strong confident and consistent voice would speak words of life of grace, of encouragement into them would you call anyone who has not heard your voice to surrender their life fully to you as Lord and for those of us that have spent a lot of time in your church or knowing you or spent time around you, a lot of times silence is hard because we've been so busy doing for you we don't know how to stop and listen and so for those, I, I pray that you would, would speak specifically to us, that you would speak in a way that, that helps us see not only that you are doing what you've always set in motion to do, but that you are fully in control, God, that we don't have to control our life, that we weren't meant to carry these things, that your spirit leads us. He is guiding us to be more like your son, Jesus Christ. And God, maybe there's a, there's a trial or hardship right now that's so difficult that even hearing the fact that it's going to be more difficult is so debilitating and, and um, horrific to even, even ponder how, how life could even seem to be more difficult. God, would you restore hope in that person? I think of the promises of Joseph where he spends 13 years in prison and yet he says the words of your words say, and God was with him. Wrongfully imprisoned, wrongfully accused, and spent 13 years there. And yet the, the, the promise is, the Lord is with me.
God, would you remind each of us that you are with us, that you are strong. And Lord, as I experience hardships in this world, I pray that you would help us to fix our eyes on you, knowing that whatever comes at us cannot shake us and not break us from your grasp as your children. My God, that it is difficult. And I pray in the difficulty we would be able to still, in some way, through your spirit, be a light and a salt to this dark, dark world. A beacon of hope because of the hope that we have in you. A beacon of faith because of the faith you began and promised to finish and perfect. Lord, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for taking our brokenness, our weariness, and creating something whole and beautiful and new that you, you will complete, God. And Lord, we pray, would you come? Would you come back and would you restore um, all that, that is still so far from, it, far from being restored? Would you restore um, our friends, our family members to you? Would you bring uh, those that have, have been led astray because they never truly followed God? Would you bring them to a deep-rooted faith in you? And as we study through Scripture and sometimes seems scholastic, would these thoughts and these words and these Scriptures not just be things that we hear and move on from, but the things that take grasp and set root in our heart and we live out of? We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.